about ladies first. Okay. Uh, my name is Kathy Henderson. I'm Associate Director for Exhibitions here at the Harry Ransom Center and co-compiler uh, with Rich Orham of the Documentary History of the Publishing Firm. I'm uh, Richard Orham. I'm uh, Associate Director and Hobby Foundation Librarian at the Ransom Center and uh, I have responsibilities for public services and, and collections here. Welcome both of you to the Bibliophile. I first uh, became aware of, of Knopf's early history from reading a, a book called The Fortunes of Mitchell Kennerly. He was a sort of young clerk there, but maybe that wasn't the start of his career. Maybe you could take me back a bit further if there is anything to talk about prior to that. Well, I think it's notable that he was a student at Columbia University and was the advertising manager of the student newspaper, remember the Columbian, I think. He was on the editorial board with the American intellectual Randolph Bourne. And after he completed college, he did the grand tour in Europe, which is, I think, where he first came in contact with Joseph Conrad. When he returned from that is when I think he started working for Mitchell Kennerly. Persuaded Kennerly to publish some of Conrad's work he started his own firm in 1915. Kennerly and uh, Knopf didn't... I think Kennerly didn't. thought Knopf was beginning to poach his oh, authors, right. okay. and so they parted ways. And there is a good quote from Knopf suggesting that everything that he learned from Kennerly was a lesson on what not to do in publishing. I think that's true. He, he tried was a, to be more straight up financially with his yeah. authors than Kennerly managed. Yeah. whether intentionally or unintentionally. Kennerly certainly knew books. I mean, he produced some, some beautiful books, but that was the thing, wasn't it? He didn't, he didn't pay uh, much attention to royalties or things yes. like that. Okay, so he starts off his own company then, middle of the First World War? Yeah, 1915. What then happens from there? He's got Conrad. Is that a big success right off the bat, or is it a struggle, or...? I think he and Blaine started out focusing on publishing translations of the works of Russian writers. That was their specialization early on. So Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and Chekhov and mm, Turkmen? They're more obscure, yeah. obscure names. And that was relatively successful? I think at the time it was because the Russian Revolution was broiling and there was actually kind of a vogue for things Russian in the early teens or mid-19-teens publishing circles. You see this fact reflected in various articles in Publishers Weekly, which was the trade publication that helped us document some of the Knopf firm's early activities because the archive here is not entirely complete. It begins substantially in the mid-1940s, and then is pretty complete up until in the 70s and 80s. Except um, for Alberts and Blanche's correspondence. Individual correspondence with their favorites that go all the way back. Right. And some of the publicity files go further back, and permanent title files go further back and fill in some of those holes. Okay. The early component of the archive was destroyed in a post-war publisher's paper drive because there was a paper shortage uh, following the World War II conflict. And so there were these drives among publishers to scrap their archives to recycle the paper into printing paper. So putting the collector's cap on, those early Knopf 
English translations might be uh, might be interesting. How easy are those to find? They're certainly out there, and, and many of them are uh, available at, at very reasonable prices. But often they're in, uh, lacking dust jackets. And what kind of dust jackets would they have had on them? The early ones are pretty nondescript. For text, text five or text mostly not yeah, dressed treatments yeah. rather than pictorial or sometimes just glycine over buckram. Well, one thing that they did was an innovation, uh, not involving dust jackets, was these paste paper covers that you're wonder, absolutely wonderful. I would think that those are very collectible. Paste papers are usually uh, uh, brightly colored, decorated. It was an experiment that in the 20s mostly. It didn't extend much beyond there. Uh, I think of some of Carl Van Vechten's, maybe some of Willa Cather's books. They're bright, they strike the eye uh, in, in the fairly dull world of early 20th century publishing and uh, aesthetics. Uh, they must have really stood out in bookstores. I think it was pretty distinctive to them because their reputation for producing really attractive titles, both on the part of readers and collectors and on the part of writers who felt their work was better promoted and delivered in this nice package. It was quite novel for the time. Alfred really came from a strong advertising background, I think partly through his father's influence and his own experience at Columbia. He also financed the company, did uh, Helped. Play, play yeah, and then was employed by the company as their financial officer for some years. He must have meddled in the, in the Knopf's relationship because Blanche Knopf hated, came to hate Sam Knopf, the father of Alfred. Oh, okay. What was that? He just meddled too much? It was a, it was, it was a manipulative, I think, oh. a meddler. When does Blanche come onto the scene? From the very get-go. She's hands-on, she's involved. Mm-hmm. She does a lot of manuscript solicitation and recommendation, a lot of the editing. I guess they began over time to carve out somewhat separate territories of responsibility. But for that period in publishing, she's in a sense a pioneering woman publisher because quite early on she's named president of the firm. By 1918, shortly after their son, uh, Pat Knopf, is born. And the other thing that was quite unusual, uh, it's a sort of a theme that runs through the early Knopf years, is that uh, both, of course, were, were Jewish, and uh, Jews at that time were, not, were uh, pretty much at the fringes of American publishing, and uh, that changed later, certainly after by World War II, but at that time, uh, Alfred was, was sort of an outcast in American publishing, and there was a lot of anti-Semitism, and he, he suffered quite a bit from that. He wasn't allowed to attend one of the uh, publishers' lunchtime groups, so he created his own. So that just shows you what kind of forceful personality and drive he had. So we've got, we've got the translations then early on, then we've got the paste paper uh, as a, a, a type of book that he would have produced for a variety of different uh, authors. Yeah. We've mentioned Conrad. Is there, a, is there another sort of big success that pushes him forward? Well, for the 1920s, his two most popular authors were writers whose names are not known any longer, Carl Van Vechten and Joseph Hergesheimer. And for their titles in particular, he would issue any number of editions. There would be a signed, limited edition, mm -hmm. often in multiple different bindings, as well as these differently covered trade editions. 
Um, so for the collector seeking to be comprehensive, there are a lot of variants uh, within a printing or an edition to mm-hmm. look for and pick up. Another important association for Knopf in the 20s, which was sustained, was his personal and professional association with H.L. Mencken. He and George D. Nathan were co-editors of the um, American Mercury, which Knopf published, a monthly magazine. Uh, That association for Knopf was extraordinarily important, not simply because Mencken's titles were popular, but also because Mencken brought to Knopf's attention other writers he thought Knopf should be publishing. So Mencken, through the pages of the American Mercury, brought a lot of new talent to the Knopf firm, James M. Kane, you know, such titles as The Postman Always Rings Twice and Mildred Pierce and other works now best known through their cinematic versions. Yes. Mencken didn't bring Hammett to the Knopf's attention, but I think their publication of Kane did, and Hammett just showed up through the transom. The, the firm had such a reputation for fair dealing with its yeah. authors and for producing a really nicely packaged product where people did judge a book by its cover, and if it had the Borsley imprint, mm-hmm. they would assume it was a quality read, and so would just buy it without needing too many other critical or word-of-mouth imprimaturs for it. The other mob coup of the 1920s was acquisition of Willa Cather, who was mad at her current publisher. One day she walked into Alfred's office and in about 1925, I think it was, and said, I like what you're doing, Mr. Knopf. And she always called him Mr. Knopf, and he always called her Miss Cather for the rest of their relationship. (laughs) She said, uh, let's see what you can do, and then to publish all the rest of her work to the end of her life, including, of course, uh, Death Comes to the Archbishop. And it continued to reap rewards for them in the backlist. All of, her, all of her titles did uh, for years afterward. I'm interested to uh, learn of the association between Mencken and uh, Knopf. Wasn't there some controversy not that long ago about Mencken's anti-Semitism? Alfred, in later writings and memoirs or conversations, basically said he didn't consider Mencken to be anti-Semitic. He didn't see any sign mm-hmm. of it himself. Yeah. Well, it's, I think it's like a lot of uh, anti-Semites that had conversations with someone that just this week about Ezra Pound. He could hate in the aggregate, aggregate, but when it came down to individuals that he didn't right. trust, it, yeah. it was different. The other thing that's interesting, and, and a lot of successful publishers do have their own magazines, and that's a great, almost like a farm team. Mm-hmm. where they can test out uh, authors. Yeah, I don't think Alfred exercised much editorial control over the American Mercury, though. I don't see much evidence of that in the archive. He left Mencken and Nathan to their own devices, defended them if they faced censorship suits, but for the most part trusted their editorial judgment. That would be something else to collect, I guess, if you're if you're a fan of Mencken. It's like Phenom. a magazine. Yeah. The ones that we have, a lot of them are on bad paper and they're falling apart, so they're, mm-hmm. they're kind of ephemeral. You're not going to find them in absolutely crisp condition. Yeah. We moved through the 20s. That's a pretty profitable period, I would assume. Yes, and in fact, their most profitable title was first published in the 20s, Khalil Gibran's The Prophet. And Knopf 
was always fond of saying, maybe disingenuously or not, that they never had to promote it. It's just it, it just sold itself by word of mouth from reader to reader. And it enjoyed a real resurgence in the 60s, and it's still in print, although I don't know that the Knopf firm retains the exclusive rights to the... But it was their cash cow for many, many years, along with Benton's This Is My Beloved, rather than all work of verse. <laughs> Through their association with Carl Van Vechten, they also published um, quite a few works by writers now associated with the Harlem Renaissance. Probably the best known um, would be the poet Langston Hughes. What, his first book was published by Knopf? The Weary Blues, yeah, that is a very highly, highly, as you would imagine, collectible book with its dust jacket particularly runs into the, into the thousands. Hughes had an interesting relationship, more with Blanche, I think, than with, with, with Alfred, is that he got quite radical and went to the Soviet Union and uh, wrote uh, books about how wonderful communism was, and you know, that they were quite liberal and but by all standards of the time, but they got a little uh, scared by, by Hughes's radicalism and they backed off from him. They published his autobiography later, The Big C, and they, intermittently they would publish books by him. And then there was this, I think, a big gap of about 15 or 20 years and they didn't publish anything. Mm -hmm. uh, he went to other publishers and then toward the very end of his life they published three or four books of his poetry. You talk about their liberal mindedness. Would that have been an er one of the earliest African American writers who was would have been published by a, I don't know if you would classify Knopf as mainstream at that time, but was there something unusual about that? Well, I think there was. But on the other hand, uh, Harlem was all involved partly because of Carl Van Vechten. Uh, there's a there's a song at the time uh, lyrics like. Uh, I uh, like to go inspecting with Carl Van Vechten and take the take the A train to to Harlem and uh, you know it was sort of slumming in a way but it was in vogue you know jazz was in vogue black art Negro art was, was heavily in vogue African art as well they were kind of riding the tide of that and this would have been when the twenties about the crash nineteen twenty nine it affected the firm as it did I think any others and uh, in fact it's it's a little Shady, but they, I think, nearly did go bankrupt because of some financial arrangements that Samuel Knopf had entered into. And they had a difficult time meeting their bills for a fair amount of time in the 30s. They experimented with lower-priced editions, um, but basically kept to their quality tenants as, as best they could. They got rid of their London office as well. The Bourgeois, was that a specific brand within their output, or was it on everything? It was on everything. It was their imprint. They were dog lovers, and Blanche had owned some Russian Bourgeois at one point, which she later regretted because she said they were the stupidest dog she had ever had. <laughs> Beautiful, but stupid. <laughs> you, you mentioned that there was a range of books that they produced to cater to various markets. At the top of the line, then, are there books that stand out that may not be that well-known, but that are particularly well-produced? Kathy was earlier talking about the limited editions, which they mainly uh, produced for their friends, and, and those weren't in, in general circulation. They've reached the antiquarian market now. 
and we have a number of them in, in their uh, in their own library here at the Ransom Center. In the mid-30s, Knopf uh, made contact with uh, William Addison Dwiggins, known as Dwig, and uh, that became a, a really fruitful relationship that lasted to his death in about 1955-57. Dwiggins was incredibly productive, but he was he was designing and he was doing great work, uh, wonderful work, uh, very collectible work, uh, dust jackets, every aspect of the book, typography. Mm-hmm. He invented a, his own typeface, New Caledonia. And he worked with through the Plimpton Press in Massachusetts. And so, but these were trade books, but they were produced to the highest standards of quality uh, and, and design. Can you name some titles? H.G. Wells, uh, War of the Worlds, uh, a number of the, the James M. Cain titles uh, were produced in uh, using the, uh, with dust jackets, using the uh, their copyrighted or trademark uh, Dwiggins uh, stencil technique. Uh, repeated motifs, geometrical um, design motifs. And would that uh, identify his dust jacket work then? Is this geometric uh, look? You can almost always identify a Dwiggins dust jacket almost immediately. They just have a, a certain something to them. And they're often very extremely colorful with clashing or you know, really vibrant colors that would have stood out again in a, in a kind of colorless publishing world. Hmm. And this would have been in the 30s? From the 35 onward through the 40s, he just continued to uh, assist Knopf. Uh, He had to deal with paper shortages during the war and had a number of suggestions for dealing with that. And then he always had these suggestions for a new series of books that would not have, for example, uh, dust jackets on them, but that the uh, the dust jacket uh, design motif, geometrical motif, would be on the paper of the cover, and it was a way of cutting costs. He was very conscious about cutting costs, but he wanted to, within constraints, uh, produce the absolute finest product he could for Knopf. He was, uh, I would say, uh, almost obsessive. Sounds like my kind of employee. (laughs) Did he identify his jackets with their signatures or a little uh, logo or something? Firms kind of distinctive for giving detailed information about print runs and date of publication and the type font used and who designed the book. If it had illustrations, we illustrated it. So they were made by people who understood uh, book collectors. Uh, who themselves were book collectors up to a, a certain caliber, who just really cared about the quality of the production. That was Knopf's great accomplishment. It was, re- was really upgrading the standard of yeah, design and, and production. And uh, we could go on for an hour uh, between the two of us about the, all the Knopf designers. That, yeah, the one that really stands out. The, another one is uh, Warren Chapel, who, who lived on into the you know, 70s and produced for late 40s to the 60s. Uh, did a number of John Updike's books. Uh, he, he designed a number of wonderful one-off books in, uh, in, in watercolor. Funny, some of them funny and Mm-hmm. Uh, watercolor and off-color. Uh, <laughs> they're unique they're in the art right here. Did he write them as well? Yeah, they're kind of jokey. They're generally done as Christmas presentation mm-hmm. books to Alfred and Blanche for anniversary. It varied. 
I'm speaking with Cathy Henderson and uh, Richard Orm, both from the Harry Ransom Center and both co-authors of The House of Knopf, 1915-1960, a documentary volume which is part of the DLB series published by Gale. And not available at your local bookstore. Not available, no, that's right. One of the challenges you both faced in putting this together is what? Just the enormity of the output of the Knopf publishing house? And the enormity of the archive. And, and like all publishing archives it, that I've ever seen, at least it's, it has a, a lot of drafts and, and statements, uh, uh, bills, uh, routine correspondence about permissions. Uh, you have to go through the drafts to get to the goal. And what is the goal? A lot of the, the really good correspondence is concentrated in a series of Alfred Knopf's personal papers. And again, gold as it pertains to what the his publishing philosophy, or, you know, big questions and well, big answers. And Albert's letters are that entertaining. He was kind of a bluff, aggressive, and very t- highly intelligent and extremely astute. But it's really more the author's letters who are sometimes going to quite fun. Bad back or some of them have cartoons in them and so on. Clarence Day, famous, only famous today for life with father, was a, was also a cartoonist. A caricaturist, and uh, he, he illustrated his uh, notes that offered little cartoons. This Van Vechten sounds like quite an influential character that I've never heard of, and I suspect not that many others have either. Did he write well? He wrote a lot of novels that were popular in the 1920s, but they don't have an audience any longer. But does that mean that they weren't written well, or just that uh, he's gone out of fashion? I think it's just that he's gone out of fashion. One of the distinctive aspects of Blanche and Alfred's publishing firm was their close personal association with a lot of their writers. They would invite them to their home in uh, upstate New York called The Hovel. Alfred, perhaps through the influence of Carl Van Buchten, who was a good amateur photographer, took a lot of some home movies and a lot of still photographs of his authors, mm-hmm. which are part of the archive and which, much of which was used to illustrate the volume you referenced earlier. That level of personal attention to their writers, I think, is unique. They traveled a great deal, making um, purchasing trips to Europe on an almost annual basis, purchasing rights for works. And then they would hire translators, or this would be British. No, they they hire they would hire translators for European works. Is there a particular translator that that may have done a bang up job that collectors could go after? Thomas Mann is a case in point. They used a single translator for most of his works, whom he didn't particularly Mann himself didn't particularly think was the most felicitous translator of his works, but Knopf wouldn't change the translator because I think he thought there was kind of an established American voice for Thomas Mann that he did not want to see shifted. I mean, your books are selling beautifully here. Why change the translator only to risk having a, a different translator not sound like you to yeah. the American reader. Well, it's, it's, like, it's really like a different author, isn't it? New Directions 
is sort of renowned for bringing foreign writers to the attention of the American public, but it sounds like this is what Knopf... Knopf was kind of a mentor to James Lachlan. Lachlan looked up to Knopf a great deal, and there are photographs of Lachlan in the Knopf archive and correspondence. So uh, Lachlan, in a sense, modeled some of his own publishing impulses, practices on the Knopf firm, and looked to Alfred for advice and just as a model. Um, but Knopf was very involved in fostering English language translations of European, Latin American, and Japanese literature. Those are probably the three translation programs that they're most closely associated with. Harold Strauss, who was stationed in Japan and read Japanese, spoke Japanese, was the editor at Knopf, instrumental for starting a very active program of translation of Japanese literature after World War II. And it's probably, the firm is best known probably for first bringing to the American public's attention the works of Yukio Mishima, which then New Directions actually published in the paperback. The uh, Kanan firm also really popularized and actively pursued Latin American, Mexican and Latin American novelists. Did they do uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez? No. He'd, he'd be the one that sort of stands out. It was more than really the first generation. The really uh, important way was the, the French post-war way, which Blanchard was almost single-handedly responsible for capturing uh, Simone de Beauvoir, Sartre, Camus, and the list goes on. All of those people were, were signed up within a, a year or two, right after the war. And the story goes: as soon as Paris was opened up at, immediately after the, the Allies uh, drove out the Germans as it, it, Blanche was one of the first civilians to come in. There's picture, pictures of her with military attaches and, and uh, she was right in there and within a matter of weeks she was signing up. People left and right what became famous French writers of the, of the post-war era. It, it sounds like just so much fun, doesn't it? Learning about what's going on outside of the United States and then getting to them quickly and uh, and bringing them here. The United States is known as being sort of insular, at least the general population is not really knowing a great deal about what's going on in the rest of the world. That's one of the criticisms of it. It was a monetary motivation, I would assume, but on the other hand, there was, must have been that the desire to enlighten the American public, too. Yeah, there was some altruism to it because a lot of these titles were not bestsellers for them. Maybe I could ask both of you separately, if you were to collect any books that Knopf had put out uh, over the, the course of their history, what would you go after? I think I'd go after cookbooks because they were a firm that really popularized uh, the current American obsession with fine cooking. Alfred was himself a gourmand. Uh, you couldn't get Blanche to eat, I think, more than a celery stick. But um, Alfred liked his food and wine, although he didn't approve of being drunk. I think the pivotal cookbook that they released in this country was, of course, Julia Child's The Art of French Cooking. That cookbook really launched them as a significant cookbook publisher. And that was largely in re 
remains, I think, under the editorship of Judith Jones. She was one of their early cookbook editor champions. And they published a lot of, I think, important texts that helped the American public educate it itself about fine wine. Is there anything that distinguishes these books? I think they tested a lot of the recipes and uh, insisted on a standard of recipe writing that uh, set a stage for clarity of instructions and again for the beauty of the design of the book. And it's, you know, for a cookbook, which gets a lot of use in the kitchen, they hold up pretty well. Mm-hmm. We're well bound and well manufactured and produced. How about you, Richard? You could collect, it would be interesting to do that, any, any number of prominent Knopf designers, some of whose names are pretty familiar. Uh, Herbert Beyer, Rudolf uh, Rosica mm-hmm. is another uh, famous, fairly well-known book designer. Yeah, and then, woodcuts, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and Dwiggins, uh, Dwiggins was, but Dwiggins was the master. And he did several hundred books for Knopf, various things. Including total design, and uh, some of them are, are are expensive more because of the author than the than the design. That's the trick, isn't it? You can get a really well designed book by an important uh, designer uh, for not that much money if, right. if the author isn't that well known. Yeah, then there, but there's lots of, of especially his later work and uh, these rather mundane books that. Knopf published in the early 50s uh, with the geometrical repeated designs that he was famous for uh, on the, the paper that's actually adhered to the cover, so there's no dust, need for a dust jacket. Uh, How many of those would there be? Roughly? I, 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 don't, I couldn't tell you. It was a, a series they did as an experiment in the early 50s, probably not more than 50, 25 to 50 titles. You can, you can get a lot of Dwayne's output for very little money. And the thing that's, uh, that makes it so impressive is is what? Well, the consistency uh, of the quality and the uh, uh, imagination at work. Uh, his mind was right up to the time of his death. He was always his mind was always spinning out. He would write these four, five, or six page memos to Knopf about book production during the war, how to save money, we need to do this better, why don't we use this paper instead. He had all of these theories, and I think Alfred had mostly ignored his, his uh, sometimes offbeat ideas, but he, he and Alfred got along very well. They didn't see that much of each other because uh, Dwight lived in the uh, Boston suburbs. So, uh, and Knopf pretty much stayed in New York, but they would visit back and forth several times a year, and uh, certainly they corresponded a great deal. We have uh, several boxes, a couple of boxes worth of correspondence between the two. But that's an area that anybody could get into and start into with very little money, and the same is even more true of the other Knopf. Designers of interest. Was, was that correspondence published, or is there anything? It's, these sound these letters sound fascinating. I wonder. Uh, Dwiggins wrote some books himself, did he not? Yeah, about about ten percent of it uh, was published by Alfred in an article, and uh, it's been reprinted and it's readily, pretty readily available. Let's just wind down then, if we could. What did you both learn from this exercise? Uh, as it pertains to the practice of 
of publishing and the success that uh, Knopf enjoyed? I mean, it covers old-style publishing habits right through to the kind of contemporary upheaval that the publishing industry is going through. The profession was constantly shifting, and so what but you they were pretty adept at changing with it and anticipating. And so it's an evolu- you're getting a really good view of the evolution of the of industry. American publishing, yeah. Right. Why did so many other publishers think so highly of Knopf? The, the devotion to quality in terms of both the, the list and the back, maintaining the backlist of, of major American and, and foreign writers. And, and the book designs, which were as far above, as seen as the finest in American trade publishing in the mid 20th century. Uh, but on the other hand, there was a dislike of, of Albert by some people personally. He was a, a very abrasive, aggressive personality. Blanche was uh, a little softer, but, but not much. I would say the word driven is maybe the one to apply to her. She was a very no nonsense. If you got in her way, she would just knock you down and keep on going. They were, bo- they were both like that. They were both driven. Uh, so that there was a, there were some resentments out there. Mm-hmm. They were diplomatic then. No, I would never use that word. Mm-hmm. What about uh, what you may have learned from your uh, your experience or your research or your time with the Canucks? Well, I, I you just have to admire them tremendously for what the contributions they made uh, to American publishing. You just can't imagine uh, Bell Lettre publishing in this country uh, without them. It just They really changed the whole landscape, almost uh, single-handedly. And then they continued that all the way through the sale, through the sale of Knopf to Random House and, and then beyond. The, there's a continuity there which to, to some extent continues to, to today, but I have to say that though it's possible to, in my view at least, admire them, it's very difficult to love them as personalities because of some of the uh, the, the personality traits that, that I talked about uh, earlier. Uh, interestingly, nobody has ever finished a, a full-length biography of, of Blanche or Alfred. But, I guess uh, you and I have gotten as close to anybody. Yeah, we yeah. broke through. <laughs> <laughs> well, we didn't have to do much interpretation. No. Being a documentary volume, it speaks for itself. And the exchange of correspondence with their writers gives you a real sense of their voice versus the exchange of memorandum they have with staff, which is a different kind of voice. I think they operated with a great deal of integrity no matter what their personality quirks were. Right. And that has to count for something in terms of why reputation, why they succeeded. Alfred may have been gruff, but I think he was a very convivial person and liked to host parties and celebrate events. And he traveled a lot to visit writers where they lived he was constantly making trips and keeping in touch with his writers on their home turf rather than making them always come to his. And many of their authors were, were, were friends, I mean, real genuine friends who came to their uh, estate at the Hubble and purchased New York, the Hudson. Going back to their personalities, they, they did have a little bit softer side in their later years, and then they both got this great love of the American West and parks, and there are funny pictures of them with sort of dude wear. They met a lot of friends in Texas, which is the ultimate 
perhaps ultimately why the, the archive came here. Huh? Yeah, and the one Texas artist and designer, Tom Lee, did a lot of work illustrating and designing works by John Graves. There's a real Texas classic that probably isn't well known. Goodbye to a River. Yeah, probably not well known. Much outside the state, but it's a great mm-hmm. small work and uh, of natural history. But they, they did a, a very nicely designed book. Finally, I've been reading a bit about a handful of publishers in the 1890s. Stone and Kimball, Small Maynard, uh, Copeland Day, Russell was another one. These were small companies that produced some lovely work, but none of them succeeded. It seems to me that what Knopf did was take a lot of their sensibilities and was smart about his business. I think it's kind of hard to trace back what all of the influences might have been. I think he may have been influenced about his love of literature by some teachers he had at Columbia. I honestly think he was just self-made, and these were his own very distinctive ideas that played well at the time he offered them forth to the buying public. So there was no one that sort of instilled a, a love of the book as object in him then? Not that I'm aware of. I think he, yeah, he was sort of self-made. Uh, well, I don't know exactly how much of it came from his home environment, so we don't know much about it. But he was a connoisseur. I think he invented himself he as a teenager. Yeah, he dressed flamboyantly. He's a wine connoisseur, a food connoisseur, uh, a lover of fine art. And this was part of his uh, self-identity from, from a very uh, early age. Great. Well, well, thank you very much for enlightening access to the Knopf house and uh, the fine things that they've brought to book lovers throughout the past hundred years. Pleasure. Pleasure. Thanks very much. I've been speaking with Kathy Henderson and Richard Orne, both librarians at the Harry Ransom Center, University of Texas at Austin. Thanks again.